0: Well, um, as Peter has mentioned, I'm carrying on your series in the book of of Romans this morning. Uh, And I think it is fair to say that the chapter that we've reached, the passage that we've reached in Romans, um, isn't the most straightforward to get our heads around. Um, But it is worth mentioning, I think, that on the last Sunday, I was on staff here at Hebron as a youth worker in July 2011. Uh, I preached that Sunday morning. It was in the Thistle Street building, just around the, the road there and um, the passage that i was given to preach on uh, was uh, in romans chapter 7 uh, which is a wonderful thing i haven't mentioned that to anyone um, since we arrived and um, you might explain it in a number of different ways i guess you might take it to be a coincidence you might take it to be a, a gentle kind of nudge from the lord the lord being um, kind or you might as, as my current boss suggested you might take it as an indication that i messed up so badly the first time and <laughs> um, i've been given another shot by the elders i've Well, I I, I, I really don't think it's the first of those options. In truth, I very much hope it wasn't the third. And so I'll take it as the second, as a gentle kindness from God. Let's read that passage together. Romans chapter 7. We'll read verses 1 to 12 together before we think about it for a few minutes. Romans chapter 7 and verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person Having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet Deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together before we think about it. Now let's pray. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning and we ask simply that you would help us to see this morning. For what it is. Not as a chance to hear me speaking. But as a chance to hear you. The God of the universe. The one who spoke all of creation into existence. The one whose word is powerful. And active. And changes people. To hear you speaking. Through your word, the scriptures. It's an extraordinary thing. And we ask therefore, Lord, that you'll please rid any of our minds of distraction. Please grant me clarity of thought and expression. And we ask that you would open each of our hearts to the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask it all in the name of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen. Well, as as Willie's mentioned, I've uh, answered a number of questions over the course of this weekend so far. I suspect I'll answer a number more over the course of the rest of the day. So I thought I would take the chance to ask you all a question um, as we begin thinking about Romans chapter 7. My question is this Why should Christians bother obeying God? Why should Christians bother obeying God? wonder if you've ever asked yourself that kind of question before. And if the question seems irrelevant to you, or perhaps even a bit irreverent to you, just please bear with me for a moment or two and let me explain why it's worthwhile to give some time to thinking about it. Because it's a question that comes out of your studies in Paul's letter to the church in Rome over the past few months. See, in Romans, Paul has explained that all people Every single person to have walked the face of this planet, barring one, has rejected our God. We have rebelled against him. We have sinned, in Paul's words. And therefore, says Paul, everyone stands under God's just and right judgment. We are all rightly condemned. Guilty as charged, says Paul. But wonderfully, God sent a rescuer. He sent Jesus, who died the death that we deserve, so that when we trust in him, we're forgiven, completely forgiven, washed clean, says Paul. Now that's all really wonderful news, but when we grasp it, we grasp the extent of the forgiveness that is ours as Christians, it does give rise to that question. If God's forgiven you, forgiven you for all of your sin, all your rejection of him, Well, then what's to keep you from just carrying on and sinning some more? Now, maybe you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian this morning. And this is just one problem you might have with the Christian faith, that it doesn't seem quite right to you somehow. I had a conversation with someone a number of years ago who was in exactly that situation. He wasn't a Christian. I had explained the extraordinary forgiveness available to all people through Jesus' death on the cross to him. And in response, he said this. Isn't that just like giving a group of convicted criminals a reusable get-out-of-jail-free card? What's to stop people from offending again and again and again? Now maybe you can empathise with that kind of logic. But my guess is that for many of us who are Christians... This kind of question, whether whether we've articulated it as clearly as that or not, this kind of question isn't just a matter of logic. It isn't one that we ask in the cold light of day. It's the one we ask in the heat of the moment. In a moment where we're tempted to disobey God. As a finger hovers over the remote control or the computer mouse and you're contemplating watching something that you know God wouldn't have you watching. As your mind lingers on a bitter or a proud or an unloving thought that you know isn't honouring to God and the thought just flashes into your mind, well, God's forgiven me anyway. What difference does it make if I obey him or not? And so the question stands, as a Christian, as one who has been completely forgiven by God's extraordinary grace, why bother obeying him? Well, the reason I begin with that question is is not to shock anyone. The reason I begin with that question is is that Paul begins with that question. Or at the very least, he begins this section of his letter to the church in Rome with just that question. You saw it if you were here last Sunday morning in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 verse 15 says this. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Or in other words, God has freed Christians from the penalties of having broken God's law. So what's to keep me, someone who has been forgiven completely, from breaking the law some more? Is my forgiveness like a spiritual get-out-of-jail-free card? That's the question on the table at the end of Romans 6. And last Sunday, Kevin really helpfully walked us through the first part of Paul's answer to that question. He says, of course not. Of course you're not free to sin. Why? Well, because as Christian says, Paul, we have a new master. We don't serve sin anymore. We serve God now. And that new master is so much better than the old one. The old one was a tyrant. The old one only enslaved you more and more and more, but the new one, well, the new one's kind. He gives you what you don't deserve. He gives you the free gift of eternal life, said Paul. Of course you don't carry on sinning, he says. You've got a new master now. But that isn't all that he says in response to that question. Christians don't just have a new master, says Paul. In Romans 7, he says, Christians are in a new marriage Now that might come as a surprise to some of us here this morning. You might not have realised when you woke up that you are in fact married. Paul says you are. Let's follow his logic under our first heading this morning. Christians are released from the law and married to Jesus. Wonderful. Thank you, Ollie, for putting those points onto the screen. Christians are released from the law and married to Jesus. Just look back with me at Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Now, when I was a student, during the holidays, I used to wait tables at quite a posh uh, wedding venue back in Ayrshire, and so I would work around 60 or 70 weddings each year. And um, over the years I was working there, it seemed to me that more and more often folks were choosing to write their own vows when they were getting married. You might have seen uh, a growing tendency towards that uh, more recently. And some of those vows were really beautifully written obviously put a lot of time and thought into it and a lot of gifting in writing them. But I'll be honest with you and say that my experience was that Ayrshire was not awash with Shakespeare's. Uh, so some of them were, um, they were a bit less poetic, we'll say. I'll be diplomatic about it. A bit less poetic. But because a lot of people were using bespoke vows, when a couple chose to use the traditional vows, well, they seemed all the more powerful somehow. For better... Or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. And just see if you can finish this sentence. Can anyone shout it out for me? Till when? Till death do us part. It's a really powerful promise, isn't it? In marriage, people promise themselves to each other in a binding way, a legally binding way, until one spouse dies, at which point the marriage bond breaks. And in much the same way, says Paul, the law, by which he means God's law, the law that was given to Moses for his people to follow, that law was like a spouse to whom people were married. And they were married till death do us part. It was a binding relationship. There was no getting out of it. And it's important to clock that because, continues Paul, verse 4, you died. You died. If you're a Christian. And that's funny. You might be thinking, my memory's not what it used to be, but I don't remember dying recently. Paul says, if you're a Christian, you did. That's just what happened to you. You died, verse four, with Jesus as he was crucified. And that death released you from the marriage to the law and instead freed you to marry another spouse. Which spouse? Well, the big reveal comes in verse four, to him who has been raised from the dead. You were raised to marriage with Jesus. That's the logic of what Paul says. The end of an old marriage through death with Jesus and the beginning of a new marriage through resurrection with Jesus. And it is just extraordinary what Paul's saying. But it is worth just pausing there for a moment and asking how on earth that answers that big question from Romans chapter 6. Remember the question, if I'm no longer under the law... Why should I bother obeying God? How does this kind of marriage illustration answer that question? Well, it does it in two ways. And the rest of our time is going to be walking through each of those. The first answer we see from Paul is you are married to Jesus. So you can serve him faithfully now. Just look again with me at verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that... We serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Being free from the law means that you're married to Jesus now, says Paul. And actually, that means that there aren't just two parties to your marriage. It means that there are three. There's you, the Christian. There is Jesus, the one who was raised from the dead, verse 4. And there is verse 6. The Spirit. By whom Paul means the Holy Spirit. So, what Paul's saying is that as part of this new marriage, God Himself lives within you. He helps you to live as God would have you live, to love the things that He loves and to hate the things that He hates, to be more and more like Jesus. So, practically, Let's just get down to brass tacks when we're in the heat of the moment this week. And you find yourself asking a Romans 6 kind of question. Why on earth as a Christian? Why should I bother obeying God? He's forgiven me anyway. What difference does it make? What do you do in that moment? Now when we left Hebron 10 or 11 years ago, Fiona was still called Fiona Gibb. That was her maiden name. She became Fiona Gilmer about 8 or 9 years ago. But it took her a while to get used to that change. The change in her name she kept assuring me that wasn't because she had any regrets over her life choices or anything like that still not sure if i'm convinced but, but it did mean that for the months after we got married when, whenever fiona had to sign anything when she was going into the bank when she was signing formal documents well she had to consciously remind herself that she had a new name Looking back on it, I think it probably looked a bit suspicious at times as she spelled out her own name while signing a cheque in the bank G I L M O U R. But she did need to remind herself, I'm married now. That changes what I do in this situation. And in much the same way as Christians, asking yourself that Romans 6 kind of question, well, it really helps to remember that your marital status has changed when you find yourself being tempted in the heat of the moment, tempted to play fast and loose with the truth while on a sales call to a client, while filling out a tax return, toying with joining in with the office gossip about one of your colleagues, contemplating, striking up an inappropriate relationship or pursuing an inappropriate relationship, and the the thought just flashes through your mind in that moment, God's forgiven me, why shouldn't I just crack on anyway? What do you do in that moment? Well, just like Fiona, Fiona, Standing at the front of the queue in the bank, consciously remind yourself, things have changed. Not just insofar as I've been forgiven. I mean that's true. But I'm married to a new spouse now. I have the Holy Spirit living in me, helping me to honour and to obey that spouse. And if any that's anything that starts to change the question we ask ourselves in that moment from I'm forgiven now why shouldn't I sin to I'm married now will acting on this impulse really honour my spouse is that what he would have me do it is a mind shift a radical mind shift Now, if you are here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, and your view has always been that the Christian faith is little more than a spiritual get out of jail free card, well, I hope that at the very least you can see that that that's not how the Christian faith is held out for us. It's not what the Christian life is. It's an ongoing, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus. And that is a wonderful thing. It's a deeply, deeply attractive thing. I do hope you can see that this morning. That's the first answer to this question in Romans 7. I'm forgiven, why shouldn't I sin? Answer, you're married to Jesus. You can serve God faithfully now. But that isn't the only attitude Paul means to address in Romans 7, I think. And to help us think about that, let me tell you about a friend of mine who not too long ago had a bit of a disagreement with his father. And they were both remembering back to the days when my friend was a little boy. And his dad used to to put him in a special child's seat that would go on the back of his bike. And they would go out cycling together through the town where my friend grew up. And my friend's dad was nostalgically remembering how my friend used to absolutely love it when he would cycle right along the edge of the harbour in the town where they lived. And he said the little boy used to laugh and he would shout and he would cheer. And it was always the highlight of the cycle ride. To which my friend responded by telling his dad that actually he used to be terrified when his dad used to cycle along the harbour. He couldn't ever remember laughing actually. He could distinctly remember screaming his way from one end of the harbour to the other. See sometimes, well nostalgia can be a little bit misplaced, can't it? Things weren't always as good as we remember them to have been. And the reason I mention that is that in the question Paul asks in Romans 6, well, he actually puts his finger on a kind of misplaced nostalgia. In particular, a nostalgia about how good things used to be when people were married to their old spouse, when they were under the law. Let's just look at that together under our final heading this morning. Your old marriage to the law was deadly. Why would you want to go back? What kind of misplaced nostalgia am I talking about? Well, just notice with me that when Paul asks that question in Romans 6, there's a kind of presumption built into the question. Okay, I wonder if you noticed it. It says, now that we're not under law, are we free to sin? Should we sin? Inference being, when people were under the law, well, we didn't sin. Or in other words, The law, the law that was given through Moses in the Old Testament, well, it was actually quite effective in keeping people from sinning. It was a a pretty good spouse overall. It helped me to please God, to relate to him rightly. And I think that explains why in Romans 7, Paul isn't just concerned to show how great our new marriage is, for those of us who are Christians, how great it is to be married to Jesus, although he is concerned with that. It explains why he wants to show how toxic that old marriage was, that marriage to the law, to confront a misplaced nostalgia. Because, says Paul, that old spouse, the law, well, it didn't actually keep them from sinning at all. If anything, it made things worse. Now, I wonder if you've ever seen a cop drama on the TV where a forensics team arrive at a crime scene And as they process the scene, they shine a UV light over different parts of the room. And it shows up all kinds of really grim things in the nooks and crannies, stains and dirt and grime around the room. Grime that was always there, but you couldn't see it with the naked eye. And you needed the UV light to reveal it. Well, says Paul, the law didn't fix your heart. It showed it for what it was. Verse 8, if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Sin, that rebellious heart towards God, was always there in every human heart. It was always dormant, whether we could see it or not, like the grime of a crime scene. All the law did, when God gave it through Moses to his people, all the law did was shine a UV light on that. Showed it for what it really was. Now, the law itself wasn't the problem. Paul's really strong about that. The the law was not the problem. It was good. The problem was our hearts. And the law just couldn't fix those on its own. And actually, Paul takes us further than that. Not only did the law work like a UV light, showing us how grimy things were on the inside of each one of us, well, it worked like an open torch. An open flame when you're trying to peer into a wasp's nest. yeah, it shows you what was there, but it did more than that. It woke the wasps up and it made them really angry. Just look with me at verse 10. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What's Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about the kind of weird impulse in each of us that we can see 100 letters in closed envelopes and not think twice about any of them. And then we can see one envelope with private and confidential stamped on the front of it. And suddenly all we want to do is to read that letter. The law didn't just show us our sinfulness. It brought it to life. Why is Paul telling us all of this? Well, he wants the Romans to see quite how toxic that old marriage relationship was. And that kind of nostalgia he's addressing might well have been a real particular problem to the church in Rome. Because there were lots of Jewish Christians in Rome, people who converted to Christianity from the Jewish faith. And you might understand why. To someone in that kind of situation, well, they might be nostalgic for the kind of relationship they did have under that old spouse, under the law. Because God had given his law to his people. And as far as many people were concerned, as long as they followed it and stuck by it, well, they could be sure they were rosy with God. And what Paul's saying is, no, that's not what it was like at all. You were never able to please God through bare-knuckled moralism. It only ever showed you to be more sinful. So listen, don't go back to that old spouse That old marriage, says Paul, only led to death. Now my guess is that there are very few of us here in exactly that boat from a Jewish background converted to the Christian faith as part of heaven. There may well be some. I suspect there'll be few though. And yet I am fairly confident that the attitude Paul is addressing is live and well in in most church families and probably, to be honest, live and well in most Christians. The sense that obedience to God is my way into relationship with him. The sense that God forgiving me is good. But that's only going to get me so far. If I want to be really certain of my standing before a holy God, well, I need to chip something in myself, don't I? And so we try. And we try. By sheer, white-knuckled obedience and yet Paul says that's never how things were meant to work the law isn't your spouse anymore Jesus is and that completely shifts the outlook on what it means to live as a Christian you aren't in a relationship with God because you obey him through white knuckled moralism why? well because you'll never manage to fully obey And if you've tried for any length of time, you'll know that just fine. In the end, that way only ever brought death, which is why what Jesus offers is so, so much better. You're in a relationship with God because when you trust in Jesus and his death in your place, you died with him. You were raised with him to new life and you are married to him now and you can serve him because the holy spirit lives within you and helps you to do that so listen why on earth would you want to go back to that old spouse romans six fifteen. 15 are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace no of course we aren't says paul but just remember well being under law didn't achieve what you thought it achieved White-knuckled moralism never stopped you from sinning in the first place. Only ever you showed you how grimy things really were. But if you're a Christian, if you've believed in Jesus, you are accepted and loved beyond compare. You've been welcomed into a fruitful marriage relationship with Jesus, enabled to be fruitful because the Holy Spirit lives within you. So serve him and serve him with joy. And if you haven't trusted in him before and you're still scrabbling around trying to please God by, by just white knuckled moralism well that's never going to get you anywhere now's as good a time as any to, to ask God for his forgiveness to wave that old spouse goodbye, that deadly spouse and to start a new married life with Jesus Let's pray to him now. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for the good news of Jesus. For the extraordinary grace that you have shown to rebellious people like us. And we thank you that that grace, that kindness, isn't just the doorway into the Christian life but that you've kept showing us kindnesses. That as a new master, you have given us the free gift of eternal life, as we saw last week. And that as a new spouse, you enable us to bear good fruit, to live in a way that pleases you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would please help us to do so. And please, would you help us to take real joy as we do so. And Lord, for anyone here or anyone listening in who is toiling, working hard to be good enough to please you, well, we ask, Lord, that you please open blind eyes to see that old spouse for what it was, that old marriage for what it was, and to turn people to trust in Jesus, to receive that forgiveness and to serve in this new way of the Spirit, bearing fruit for you. We ask all of this in the precious name of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen.